Hi, and welcome to this audio commentary on The Social Network, the 2010 movie directed by David Fincher. My name is Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to synchronize your copy of the movie to this audio commentary, we'll give you a countdown in just a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very beginning of the movie. Just before the opening scene, there should be a Columbia Pictures logo or title screen. It is kind of a Statue of Liberty looking image. A woman holding a torch above her head, clouds behind her, with the word Columbia emblazoned above her. As soon as that Columbia Pictures logo fades to black, hit pause on your Blu-ray or DVD, and that will allow us to all hit play together and watch the movie in perfect synchronized harmony. All right, if you're queued up to the right spot now, just after the Columbia Pictures logo has faded to black, let's all hit play together in five seconds. Four, three, two, one, play. So it was on everybody's top ten list uh, the year it came out, a couple years ago. Thought it'd be good to do a commentary of it, because it was a movie that I... uh, thought was uh, as good and uh, as important as uh, most other critics did. Let me just say off the top, there is a no shortage of commentaries on the movie. The Blu-ray DVD comes with um, commentaries by some of the actors, and um, the best stuff is sort of said by Fincher, in my opinion, but Sorkin's on there too, and so they have their sort of official commentaries. There are also some really great uh, other fan commentaries out there on the net. Uh, I think the guys on Down in Front did a really great one where they um, sort of analyzed the major themes and what makes the movie great in a, in a really great way. So I, I recommend those uh, commentaries to you. And, and uh, there's a couple other fan commentaries that are really good. But I want to say off the top that I'm going to try and not tread over the territory that's been treading some of those commentaries, and, and instead I'll try to say new things or bring up uh, some other things about the movie and its development and stuff like that. I'll also, um, one thing that wasn't mentioned in some of the other commentaries out there is um, Ben Mesrick, the author uh, who wrote the book, The Accidental Billionaire. So I'll, I'll say uh, a few words about him, too. As opening scenes go in movies, uh, I always find myself analyzing the opening scene uh, in most of these commentaries because I find that opening scenes are just such a fascinating thing uh, from a screenwriting perspective and, and just from a cinematic perspective. How do you, uh, how, what way into the movie are, are you being given? Uh, here with uh, the Rooney Mara character, of course, in Sorkin's screenplay, uh, she becomes the catalyst for the drive that Mark Zuckerberg, and I'll just say now, when I say Zuckerberg and Saverin and the characters here, I uh, just put them in quotation marks. Mark Zuckerberg, the character, not Mark Zuckerberg, the real dude. Uh, I'll say a few words about the real dude, uh, probably, but um, most of what I, uh, when I, when I say Zuckerberg, I mean uh, Eisenberg's character, that he is... Um, developed here and and that he is portraying, not the real dude. 
So Sorkin uses the Erica Albright breakup as the catalyst and, and part of what drives Zuckerberg. And, you know, anytime you have a biopic or, or movies based on a true story, you're always going to take a dramatic license and you're always going to change things around. And I find more than most other movies that are based on true story that come out, I find that the dramatic license and things that are altered and composite characters and the things that are done here in the social network um, and the choices that are made to take dramatic license, and uh, I find them really, really smart, not at all haphazard, very considered, and, um, you know, the only negative review of the movie technically is that I've ever seen is Zuckerberg's, uh, because he didn't feel he was fairly portrayed, but many people don't when they have movies made about them, and, and it's, it's a natural reaction, I think, but um, I really like that Sorkin gave this character a drive that we can track throughout the movie. Erica Albright will pop up in the middle of the movie when Facebook is starting to really take off for Zuckerberg, and uh, she'll be kind of uh, checking in with him and, and <laughs> in a sense, and then she'll pop up at the end in, in a kind of bookend scene that um, really works for me. Uh, so I, I, I like that. What we get from this opening scene, this is the famous one where they did nearly 100 takes, what I get from this, or what we get as an audience from this opening scene, of course, is that what's going to drive Zuckerberg to, well, we're, we're being introduced to the kind of person he is, first and foremost, and uh, how, well, how a well-adjusted, um, smart young woman that he's dating, uh, she says he's like d dating a Stairmaster, but how much she has to put up with, and, and her normalness really highlights his... Um, the fact that he's highly intelligent, intelligent analytically, and um, a really sophisticated uh, uh, thinker, but he, as many geniuses do, he he lacks in a certain kind of emotional intelligence, uh, so to speak, or uh, lacks uh, uh, social the ability to be uh, to interact in social situations and in interpersonal situations that. Um, uh, is perhaps something he never developed in his in his personality. Again, talking about the character Zuckerberg, not Mark Zuckerberg, the real dude, the real the real billionaire. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really I really love that opening scene because we 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 are we are it, it sets of course the story in uh, in motion, but I love the way Eisenberg's portrayal sort of captures that way that people who are really smart, super smart sometimes, the way that they are somehow um, often unable to relate to other people in a, in a quote-unquote normal way simply because um, their mind is always, uh, well, well, I mean, uh, you know, if they didn't cast, let me say it this way, if they didn't cast the Zuckerberg part right, if they didn't get someone of, of Eisenberg's caliber, I think the movie falls apart. This movie's a good example of just all these, it's sort of like Casablanca, the way all, you know, there's just a bunch of cooks in the kitchen and it doesn't spoil the soup. Um, it just all of these various talents coming together um, to, to make something, uh, people that, whose talents you wouldn't think go together. Uh, but, but come together perfectly. If you're trying to sync up Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's uh, credit, came on the screen a moment ago, and now uh, 
there's Jeff Cronenweth, Cronenweth the, uh, and Kevin Spacey's uh, right now, just left the screen, uh, his credit, and there's Scott Rudin's credit. Kevin Spacey, of course, the executive producer, uh, he'd been uh, associated with uh, Mesrick, the author of the book. There's Ben Mesrick's credit uh, because uh, he starred in a movie that was adapted from another book by uh, Mesrick. I'll speak about Mesrick um, in a minute here at, at the top. But uh, just to finish the thought uh, on the opening scene, um, the two things that the two sort of big choices uh, that are set up in that opening scene that that Sorkin makes are, you know, the choice to make the breakup with Erica uh, the catalyst and, and the thing that drives Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg quotation marks. <laughs> and uh, the other big choice is the the um, this aspect to uh, we hear a lot of it in that opening dialogue with uh, him and Rooney Mara, he and Rooney Mara, where. Um, he's talking about these clubs and and belonging to these clubs and and what it can get you and how it can make you feel and um, what it means to belong to these clubs and and uh, takes offense when she asks him what what's the easiest one as if uh, so this sense of where he is in the social ladder of Harvard um, uh, we have uh, insin insinuations in that opening scene about how um, how Erica. Or, or, or how Zuckerberg rather is um, perhaps not of the manner born and not as wealthy as some of the older money uh, Winklevoss types uh, who populate the Ivy League. And I'll be saying some things about uh, the Ivy League as well and just, just um, how I think this movie really captures the milieu and uh, captures what it's like to be a kid from Long Island um, who has to be at Harvard and rub elbows uh, with uh, these richer people uh, but the Zuckerberg character in that opening scene is highly, highly aware of where he is in the social network <laughs> of Harvard and where he wants to be. And uh, he wants that notoriety. Here are the, here are the uh, this is vintage Fincher here, but um, that shot of the girls on the bus, uh, the idea of girls being bussed into the Ivy League for parties um, is a very real... Uh, detail. I like that we get it. Uh, so Sorkin, uh, in the same way that Zuckerberg's rise and his the technology he developed and that made him wealthy, uh, Facebook, uh, this idea of social networking, and, and in the same way this movie um, is about kind of this generational shift that happened starting in 2003 where, where these events are uh, being depicted take place. In the same way that uh, we started to have this internet and, and uh, Web 2.0 and, and this kind of... Um, multitasking culture uh, in the same way the movie is uh, Sorkin screenplay uh, a lot of these um, cuts back and forth and parallel uh, narratives and cutting from one to the next a lot of that is in the screenplay and um, he's asking us to multicast he's a, he, he's uh, he's asking us to hold all these things in our head and and it's sort of a the movie exemplifies the short attention span that we would associate with social networking and web 2.0 and et cetera, et cetera. Much the same way that Mark here, uh, Eisenberg is blogging simultaneously blogging about the fact that he is at the same time, simultaneously hacking the Harvard computer system to get pictures of all the girls at the various uh, houses, uh, at the various uh, dormitories. Um, 
And simultaneously, while he's hacking and while he's blogging, he's sort of um, uh, partying. <laughs> and, and so Fincher and Sorkin have this intercut with these scenes from the clubs that, um, that Zuckerberg was talking about in that opening that opening dialogue scene with Rooney Mara. You see uh, the debauchery starting to heat up at these clubs just as Zuckerberg's blogging and hacking is starting to really um, uh, get going. Uh, the people taking uh, what looked like probably ecstasy or popping some kind of pill there. Um, there'll be images coming up uh, as we cut back and forth. And notice how fast we're being taken back and forth from these two places, um, from Zuckerberg's dorm with his computer programmer uh, dormitory uh, mates and to these parties that he so, uh, at these clubs that he so covets. Um, we're going back and forth, back and forth while we get that Eisenberg voiceover as we have our first shot here of uh, Eduardo Saverin played by an actor that I really, really like, uh, Andrew Garfield. So the parties that we're or the parties that we're seeing at the at those Harvard clubs where the girls are going to be dancing on tables and strip poker and all of that wild debauchery that's the idea of a party that we would associate with college and even Ivy League colleges you know that kind of wild um binge drinking etc but what's going on in in the room here in the dormitory with Zuckerberg. You notice when he came in, he grabbed a beer out of his mini fridge and then sat down and began to blog and, and sort of his roommates are into it. They're kind of into it. Uh, this is kind of, uh, this was in a, a beautiful mind too, the idea of uh, writing equations or algorithms uh, on a window pane. It's very cinematic. I like it. Uh, Fincher shoots it from outside the window and the character's looking at it. So really they're kind of looking at camera. Very very nice thing going on, and Fincher really plays up the wildness of uh, and 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 he you know because it's Fincher and because of this um, wonderful Trent Reznor music we have the idea that it's really seedy stuff going on at that at that wild party. But in the dorm room here, uh, Zuckerberg's uh, hacking what he's doing is really seedier. I mean, he is um, creating this face smash so that they can uh, very crudely. Um, uh, compare uh, women at their school and and say who which one they think you know it's it's a very uh, a very age appropriate not age appropriate but a very uh, age expected uh, you know very college thing to be doing but at the same time very um, very disrespectful to uh, the very women he would like to uh, undoubtedly uh, uh, have some kind of uh, interaction with. Now, movies these days, I mention this all the time in commentaries, movies these days, they, they're cutting all over the place. And, you know, I like Chris Nolan, but he's, you know, if you watch Inception, there's a lot of, at the beginning too, there's a lot of this cutting, 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 and, and uh, it doesn't really serve the story as much. Here, all of this fast cutting and moving from place to place, here to there, um, it serves that higher goal of, of you know, um, embracing the short attention span of the very culture it's trying to depict in the story. But also, um, it, it serves the story, you know, it, it's sort of the best way to tell the story. Anytime you have a movie that plays with chronology and, and, uh, and delivers the plot in a certain way, I think 
you have to ask, is this the best way? And and here, uh, undoubtedly, I think um, Sorkin has found the very best way to tell us this saga, this this drama, and it really is quite dramatic of what happened with Facebook Company. And as we have our first shot here of the Harvard computer man who, uh, the man who runs computers at Harvard, I don't know what the hell he's title he might have uh i don't know if they include it but but at any rate uh so uh those are just some thoughts to kind of set up where i stand about uh story and and uh all of that you know structure is uh really the most important thing i think in in uh, movies in terms of plot and storytelling i mean structure is uh I mean, the, it really works when it's invisible. I mean, you really have found the right structure when, when the structure is not drawing attention to itself, unless drawing attention to itself is part of the experience that the filmmaker wants you to have, as in a movie like Pulp Fiction. I feel like what Tarantino wants us to experience is this kind of jarring, moving from vignette to vignette. You know, each one has a title screen. So, uh, but most of the time, I feel like uh, as we have our first shot of the conference room here where uh, the Saverin deposition uh, is taking place and Saverin's action against Zuckerberg, um, I feel like all the moving from place to place and time period to time period, moving back and forth in time and, and even shifting point of view. If you notice within these deposition scenes and within the the scenes that take place at Harvard and Palo Alto and the different places in the city, New York, or the, the different places in the movie that we go, New York, um, uh, Palo Alto and, and uh, Cambridge, um, I find that it really is invisible. We don't feel these as jarring jump cuts and jarring uh, moving from time period. I mean, we don't feel it. We don't experience it as jarring because what they are doing in the deposition, and, and I feel like I consider this movie a courtroom drama. Maybe I'll say why later, but I feel like what Sorkin is really stumbled upon here is just how powerful a deposition can be <laughs> A legal deposition can be as a storytelling uh, tool. A movie that came out um, uh, this past year that I really loved was a movie called In the Family, uh, about a uh, a man who's in a, a a gay man who's trying to in a in a a very difficult custody battle, and that movie's climax is a a deposition a deposition scene that is um, sort of in real time, and and it's just extraordinary how it's used, how a deposition, a legal proceeding that's usually boring, is used to tell a story. And I really think Sorkin has, uh, in the same way courtroom dramas use the natural drama of a trial, that built-in conflict. Uh, one side against the other, and, and the, the natural drama of it to tell a story. I, I feel like Sorkin really has found the the power of the deposition. We have our first shots here of uh, Army Hammer, and uh, or they were in the previous scene, but uh, I just referred to Army Hammer as they. <laughs> one actor, Army Hammer and uh, Max Minghella, uh the son of uh, Anthony Minghella. Now, Army Hammer's been good in everything I've seen him in. Uh, a, a movie that wasn't great, but a movie that I enjoyed because I'm interested in the subject matter was uh, J. Edgar, the J. Edgar Hoover biopic made by Clint Eastwood. Uh, it had some of the worst makeup I've seen in a major Hollywood movie uh, uh, in a long time, but the performances were great, and Army Hammer was great playing Clyde Tolson, the um, alleged uh, lover of 
Hoover. The, the movie alleges that they were lovers. Um, so we cut from one, that, that Winklevoss deposition where um, the decor, unlike the corporate decor of the Saverin deposition room, the Winklevoss has sort of an old money um, uh, kind of Harvard-like feel to their deposition room, their, their conference room. And we cut right from there to this um, administrative uh, disciplinary hearing with Zuckerberg, uh, where he's in the same situation, sitting at a table with serious people, asking him serious questions where he has to account for his actions. Uh, I love that we never meet the two men who flank him. Perhaps they are guidance counselors or something like that. They seem really displeased at Zuckerberg's uh, uh, attitude that he's showing the committee. Uh, this movie... Um, it's been said that it's perfectly cast. I think the performances are good, but all the performances are good. Even the bit parts, the way those two guys flanking him are, show their concern in this in this very small role with no lines, is um, I think just adds a whole lot to the scene. You know, it adds this this secondary tension. Uh, this little sparring that he does with the Harvard, the guy who's in charge of the computers is, again, underscoring a point that we're going to have underscored for us that Sorkin really wants us to get, is that Zuckerberg, uh, you know, Harvard is a place where, you know, the computer science people uh, or the computer programmers who are going to school at Harvard are going to be the the uh, pioneers of the Silicon Valley tomorrow. I mean, they're the they're the best of the best. They're everybody at a place like Harvard. Everybody was the valedictorian of their high school. Everybody was an overachiever their whole life. Everybody's kind of a genius in a way, if you want to put it that way. Uh, if you want to use the word genius uh, loosely like that. But um, what the the and and in this scene that comes right after, we're gonna have that hammered down for us again uh we want to get that already you know he's starting to be hated by people he gets this note but also the scene's going to end with him getting the answer right here where other students uh seem not to have the answer and the the teacher there of course the professor figures that it's the difficulty of the problem that or the difficulty of whatever they're trying to answer i don't know anything about that kind of stuff but the difficulty of whatever it is he figures that's what making that's what's making zuckerberg leave and of course we have that uh you see that a lot of times in movies where somebody thinks someone's not paying attention and they prove it in this sort of dramatic way and but he was he didn't even seem to he legitimately didn't seem to be paying attention and yet he knew it just at a glance, knew the answer, underscoring the fact that among these geniuses at Harvard, these computer people, and they say that computer people are among the highest IQs, um, uh, computer programmer types, uh, among that group, he is sort of renowned or no, uh, notorious as a, a particularly bright, particularly capable. Uh, at one point in the movie, he'll say, uh, oh, just tell them out in Palo Alto that Mark Zuckerberg will t do 10 free hours of programming. Uh, as if that will be the trump card that will get them to to agree to the the deal that was being proposed um so we and it'll be in this scene too where uh they he they ask him about uh this software he created that sounds a lot like uh pandora or music sharing and he could have sold it for he could have sold it to microsoft but he just uploaded it online for free again underscoring uh, another thing that uh, the movie wants us to get early on is that money is not what's motivating Zuckerberg. It's it's 
much more emotional uh, than that. And, you know, characters who are motivated just by getting rich are, are sort of boring in movies. There you hear him. You just heard him say he uploaded it for free, and he shrugs his shoulders as if, as if to say, I, you know, why not? Uh, and that, and that, and there's a truth to that too that I think um, the screenplay and uh, really keys into is that uh, people who are engineering-minded, engineers, computer engineers, computer programmers, people who are really um, have that real systematic ability to think systematically uh, at a very deep level. Uh, engineers, computer programmers, um, they just look for the easiest way to solve the problem. And uh, they, they tend to be people who just um, say, if there's an easier way, a more elegant and efficient way, then why not do it that way? They, they solve problems. And um, sometimes they can show little concern for other uh, calculations that one might make uh, in decision making. Uh, it's just uh, find the way to solve it and solve it. Um, and so you get that sense there too from Zuckerberg that he is, uh, you know, why why not? Why not upload it for free? I'm not. I he's not trying to get rich uh, in the way that the Winklevoss twins here and uh, Divya Arendra Narendra are sort of trying to. Get rich in their own right. Now here are two different depositions at two different times pursuant to two different lawsuits, or legal actions, I should say. And it is referring to the same narrative, the same exact narrative. Um, and we even have as a plot detail there, uh, Zuckerberg saying, I'm the, uh, telling the audience, really, that I'm in the middle of two lawsuits here. What's amazing to me, was amazing to me the first time I saw the movie, is how complicated this story is. How much inside baseball about computers and about, uh, you know, about technology and about um, finance and about um, the way companies are structured. Uh shareholders and all of this how much inside baseball is being we we have to understand some of this stuff to a degree to understand the story to understand the conflicts here um i mean i mean the major conflict at one point for a long stretch in the movie is hinges upon the nuances of intellectual property uh law uh and interstate commerce and <laughs> whether it's federal or district matter and and uh and it's amazing to me that it's never confusing, that even people who are, quite frankly, not real bright are always able to follow exactly what's going on. Andrew Garfield explains what that little dance is uh, in his commentary, and I, I don't remember what it was, but whatever it is, it has to be interesting, um, that little shimmy he does. What he was saying there is some people take offense about, um, or take offense at least on behalf of Asian women, he was talking about how they, they can't dance and blah, blah, blah. If you really listen to what he's saying, it's Jewish women that he's offending. He's, he's um, giving a, a backhanded compliment to Asian women while really uh, sort of denigrating Jewish women. Um, but it is, uh, it is a realistic piece of dialogue that, um, despite its crudeness, endears us to Saverin early on in the movie. And again, Mark... 
more observant than he seems to be, and that's going to be, you know, with the ambiguities in this story and, and how culpable is Mark, what are some of the things he does on purpose and rather than not on purpose, he seems pretty aloof, but that little moment there with uh, pointing out that Niagara Falls has nothing to do with the Caribbean, later he'll make a crack about Jabberwocky uh, on the listserv uh, address uh, being a lame Lewis Carroll reference. Um, you know, this is... Uh, these little moments really are serving to to point out that maybe this guy isn't as aloof as he seems. You know, he's very perceptive. He keys in on things. He notices things. The times in the movie where he shows emotion are the times where he is um, sort of also the saying things that are the sharpest or the the most incisive. I I, I didn't explain that well. I I don't think, but um, perhaps I'll get into it uh, when those scenes come up. Yeah, Garfield's very good there. Um, oh, and the Rashida Jones character, I, I really like uh, earlier when she uh, asked, you know, she sort of served as a proxy for the audience or, or her amazement at the sheer magnitude of what Zuckerberg had done. She asked him 20 or 2,000, and he said 20,000 or something. And, and, um, it signaled to the audience, really, that, that um, the magnitude of what he'd done and how capable he is and kind of how insidious he can be, too, and how... Yeah, see that little crack about diversity that he throws in for Eduardo is... Um... <laughs> Famously, the... Uh dialogue here is comes from the actual depositions and uh the crack about the ping pong room for example i mean great stuff i mean the the way the movie again seamless you know he he was a the the story he was telling there is what we're watching and so whose point of view is it how does how is it modified by whose telling it, you know, it's, this is all, you know, very complicated stuff. Now, the actor who plays Zuckerberg's lawyer and the actor who plays the um, Winklevi and uh, Narendra lawyer, um, you can kind of tell they're actors, but evidently the woman who plays Gretchen there, there she is, um, Saverin's lawyer, is is or was a actual litigator. Uh and I find that she comes off very, very realistic. Um, um, she sort of has the mannerisms of a lawyer, the way lawyers behave in depositions. They, they, they almost, in a way, they want to be effective and they want to ask questions in certain ways, but they also want to be invisible to a, to a certain extent. And um, I feel like she captures that more, whereas... The other lawyer, I mean, the, the guys playing the lawyers are, these are character actors I've seen before, I think, but, um, at least I think, but um, they, you have more of a feeling of a performance with them, but they're very good, but I'm just saying that she's particularly, uh, rings true, I think. I won't get into what I think of um, Zuckerberg's, whether he wronged them or to what extent or who's right, who's wrong in the real-life dispute. 
or even in the movie's dispute. It's um, I think the ambiguity that the movie presents it with, uh, or generally speaking, ambiguity is um, is because the movie is not really about who won or should win the dispute or whether the settlement was fair. The movie's about you know how these people are relating to each other. The movie's about relationships, like all almost all movies. So anyway, um, oh, as we listen to this uh, sort of hypnotic uh, music, that Nine Inch Nails kind of stuff that Reznor and Atticus Ross did uh, for the movie, uh, not not having much expertise in music, I, I can't comment uh, very smartly about the job they do. Um, but I will say that I'm a huge fan of the idea of, you know, as opposed to the classical way that most movies are scored, that kind of Bernard Herrmann, John Williams kind of orchestra stuff that we see most of the time, I'm a big fan of rock musicians becoming, you know, scoring movies like this. Uh, of course, Johnny Greenwood working with Paul Thomas Anderson and um, and here Trent Reznor. And I think there are uh, a couple of other examples, but um, I'm a big fan of that. I think um, it's, it's uh, you know, really taking us in a direction where we can reconsider uh, just what a good score for a movie is or what the possibilities are for the way movies can be scored and the way music can be used. I mean, this is all music that you don't, you don't really, it doesn't function the way a lot of scores function in that, um, you know, the, the, we're moving so fast here, but the constant thing that that's holding it together is this music bed that you hear, this tension, this sort of, um, it's almost like a video game sound at times, but it's very dark and, and, um, I just think it works, but, uh, I'm a big fan of rock stars, uh, doing this, uh, this is very full metal jacket, this whole scene. Uh, and of course, Saverin gets the correct answer about John Harvard and place is so important in movies. And, and not only does this, um, impress us about Eduardo and not only does this, um, add some color to the, to the experience that these guys are having at college, but, um, it really gives us a sense of where we are and what life is like for people who go to Harvard and what it can be like and how stressful it can be with that person puking. Um, the most, I was going to say, I, I'm not going to render an opinion about um, who's right, who's wrong in the dispute. And he was doodling, of course. That's a great moment. But I do, uh, I won't render an opinion, but I do think that those emails that, and the way that, um, are especially incriminating for Zuckerberg and the way he seems to be, seems to have strung on, strung them on and, and sort of, um, uh, jerked them off a little bit, quite frankly, um, uh, really incriminating and, um, the kind of thing that would make me want to sue somebody, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a pet peeve of mine, uh, people who don't return messages and people who don't, um, people who use the uh, distance of email and, and perhaps voicemail to be less than candid or less than honest. Uh, 
Now these these moments are are um very, you know the the are I mean for a long time I guess evidently that was Mark Zuckerberg's defense in real life. Um, the real Mark Zuckerberg of it, it came down to look. Uh, if you would have invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Uh, uh, you don't owe money to if you build a chair, you don't owe money to every guy who ever built a chair or something like that. You know, um, it was that sort of simplistic and. As a legal matter, the um, Harvard professor, according to Wikipedia, the Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig uh, published a piece in which he um, sided with Zuckerberg uh, in real life and said that, look, uh, IP suits are tough to win for a reason, and um, he doesn't owe them anything. Uh, he didn't steal anything. Uh, it's, you know, the idea of social networking is, you know, uh, as a legal matter, but... Um, as an ethical matter, as an interpersonal matter, that that's of course a different story. And I think this movie's, despite the prevalence of law and and legalities uh, in the movie, I, I feel like uh, this movie's really about the the moral slash ethical question of um, if he acted badly, to what extent, and why, and. And so the movie, you know, it's these questions that the movie uh, explores, not so much, um, not so much uh, uh, what their answers are. You know, it's like a, like a good philosophy professor. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's the movie's really focusing on the questions and and um, and uh, the way Sorkin with the dialogue here really. Um, again, constructs the story in a way where we really, this light bulb moment that Zuckerberg has when he realizes that relationship status and uh, is something that would draw eyeballs uh, from college kids. And um, uh, the way he um, constructs that as uh, with his roommate asking him about a girl in his class, people don't walk around with a sign and oh, and then that dramatic way that he runs up to the dorm and All, all just very good, you know. The structure really is invisible. As visible as it is, it's invisible in a way because we don't experience these shifts as shifts, uh, but just as the same characters. <laughs> I like how he says this isn't spam. It's very... Uh, you know, I mean, I, again, you don't get Eisenberg in this role. You get some jack, jack off uh, who, who uh, is trying to ham it up or uh, something. Uh, uh, you got no movie. I think, um, I mean, it's so restrained, but that sense of someone being very blank and, and emotionless and restrained there's tons bubbling underneath that that sense is really coming out in his performance and this little uh meditation swaying he's doing here is just uh we just get it and the movie moves on it's great <laughs> now this is uh if you know anybody at an ivy league school or if you've visited ivy league schools or if you've gone to ivy league schools you you know that this is exactly the kind of again a sense of place sense of what the lives are like of these people um this is exactly the kind of event you'll have a sparsely attended event where the local acapella group or the school one of the school's many acapella groups and for some reason ivy league schools have tons of acapella groups 
you know, sparsely attended, and, and this is exactly the kind of uh, thing you'll have. And the way uh, college kids express themselves, I'm, I want to talk about Ben Masaryk in a sec, but um, I'll just say the way college kids express themselves, um, he gets to do a pratfall here, Max Minghella. It's pretty, looks like a Cary Grant-style pratfall. Um, the way college kids express themselves is really, you know, um, captured well here. I, th I think this is CGI, this shot of the bridge. Um, it's really captured well because um, the way, uh, you know, really smart college kids would know that Irving Berlin and uh, and that little knowing glance Max Minghella had there to the other kid. Uh, but really at the beginning, uh, the way Erica Albright expresses herself, she says, um, uh, when she's talking about the doorman that Zuckerberg accuses her of having slept with, she says he's a perfectly good class of people. And you know the way uh, college kids go away to school and within a matter of months or a year, they suddenly become very wise and sophisticated about class structures and socioeconomic matters and matters of philosophy, the big ideas in life. And it just rings true. That's the way uh, a young college woman uh, might sound you know uh uh she might phrase it that way and uh, so these little touches are really really something the way the movie um gives us complicated shit and doesn't confuse ourselves uh i will talk, speak about ben mesrick in a sec <laughs> uh but i just want to say uh the way uh it's never confusing despite all kinds of madness going on and and all kinds of complicated shit going on is perfectly exemplified i think in this scene uh, at one point, you had um, two people, three people in the scene. There's two people on the phone, so you got two different phone calls going. Uh, Narendra is uh, is trying to reach Zuckerberg, and um, one of the Winklevi is on the phone with their father's in-house lawyer, in-house counsel for the father's um, firm, I guess. And um, so you have those two conversations going at once, plus the conversation that's going on among the three of them. Um, then you're going to have one of them reading from the Internet, uh, the Facebook uh, website that Mark had put up, and the other one reading from the Harvard Crimson. Uh, and then you've got an argument that ensues between two of them where uh, uh, one of them takes the side of the other. You got all this going on at once in this short scene here. And it moves very fast, and the dialogue comes fast and furious, as it does in Sorkin's work all the time. And it's always perfectly clear what's going on. And nothing is convoluted. When the scene is over, we have a full consciousness of what happened and why and what was said and where everybody stands and how the plots have been moved forward. You know, none of it, none of it feels... confusing and I find that just one of the most remarkable things about this this most remarkable movie and and uh, all these little touches we get here and there about date that that sort of remind us we're in 2003 uh, the Sopranos reference uh, I want to get the Sopranos to beat the crap out of him or, or um, something like that he says this is a great moment here Gentlemen of Harvard. <laughs> I mean, the, the characterization we get. 
Yeah, Mingella is very good there. The, the way we get to know the Winklevoss twins through very little things um, that they do, the the little humor moment when they first meet Mark about um, insulting their girlfriends. Did, did he insult their girlfriends? I don't know. Um, or when the deposition starts, the way the very precise and, and dignified way that they uh, tell their names to the court reporter, Tyler spelled the usual way, uh, and spell, and then he spells Winklevoss in that very precise way. Um, and then the other one says Cameron, spelled the normal way, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's very, very, you know, it's a, this little thing that tells us a lot about them. I mean, the movie doesn't allow us to stereotype the Winklevoss twins as poor little rich boys, as, as I mean, uh, you look at the profile of this character, if you just sketch the characters uh, as the twins, they're very rich, old money, probably, uh, they, they came to Harvard, uh, probably because of nepotism, uh, they got to go to Harvard, and uh, we have every reason to resent them, or not like them, or think they're poor little, poor little rich boys, and in fact, we we kind of like them. I mean, they they go through all this stuff and, and they kind of conduct themselves in a proper way. A lot of that has to do with Army Hammer's performance. I guess the uh, movie star that they're making reference to here would have been Natalie Portman. That's what... Uh, I know other people uh, have said the same thing, too. Um, but the Ivy League schools, they always have, um, Hollywood people going there. Uh, what's surprising about that is that she was the only movie star going there. Um, uh, anyway, Ben Mesrick, um, real quick, he wrote a book called The Accidental Billionaires. Uh, the proposal was very famously, uh, leaked online and, um, it got into the hands of a lot of people, uh, but it also got into the hands of um, Aaron Sorkin. And um, I think uh, before he finished the book, um, Mesrick had uh, sold the rights to the movie uh, for the adaptation of the movie. And then Sor as he was writing the book, Sorkin was writing the screenplay. So they were writing parallel to each other, and evidently they didn't um, speak a lot. I like how um, Brenda Song is the actress here who is very good as um, Christy, I believe. And um, I like how uh, it's just sort of basic filmmaking, but I love how it works here. That white shirt that she's wearing. You know, everybody has these drab colors on, these dark colors. The room is dark. And that white shirt she has, so that when the camera swung around our two main characters here, um, we noticed her before she stepped forward and became part of the scene. Before we knew we, she was going to be part of the scene, we noticed her because of that wardrobe, because of that bright white shirt. And uh, I don't know, just uh, I like um, I like pointing out just the ABCs of filmmaking sometimes because so many movies these days just do it so fucking poorly that uh, I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's good to appreciate it when we get it. Now, this moment here is sort of a, a comic moment. It it shows, it allows us to see our two main characters in a moment of sort of where their guard is down and they're kind of bonding. Um, but I, I also like it. It captures something about being famous and quasi-famous. Not that I know anything about that, but 
um, when you're famous or quasi-famous, you have um, moments like that. You know, Zuckerberg at this time would have, uh, in that, the time of that scene, would have been quasi-famous. And uh, he, uh, you know, people just come up and say they really like you or like something you did, and you're in a position where you have to do what Eduardo ends up doing there and saying, awkwardly, you know, all right, thanks, guys, because the person who came up to say they admire you has, you know, I've seen this happen. Uh, they don't have anything else to say or anything. You think they'd have a lot to say to you, and they really don't. So it, capture, it captures that phenomenon nicely. Um, Heisenberg is very good here. I mean, he, he really has created... A character that is has nothing to do with the real Zuckerberg in a way. I mean, the line that fashion is never finished line. I mean, and the way he's sitting, it's just oh, you know. And again, you know, this guy is remarkable. He's not trying to steal a scene. He's not trying to. Eh, I just can't say enough about him. And Garfield is, is, you know, I really like him here too because he captures that. Um, you know, we heard in the opening scene that he'd made thousands uh, one summer just, you know, <laughs> predicting the weather and oil futures. And um, I think he perfectly, you know, as an actor, he's the right age. He was in a movie called um, Never Let Me Go that I really loved, and I loved him in it. But um, I think he really captures that um, that that demeanor that a college student uh, a college-age student at an Ivy League school who is um, heading into corporate America, and, you know, he captures that combination of maturity. You know, I mean, he, he is um, very mature here. He's like the parent here. You know, if anything's wrong, you can tell me, buddy. <laughs> he's like a parent to Mark here. Uh, it's one of many times where someone's going to talk to Mark as if he's a child, uh, but since in a sincere way. And um, uh, Saverin, uh, or rather Garfield here, um, I think really captures that combination of high-level thinking and sophistication that you see in some of these um, overachieving kids, but also that just that the, the way that has attention with their their youth and their inexperience and their want to just you know be a wild kid, you know. Um, for the movie's purposes, uh, Garfield will be sitting on one shoulder and and uh, the Timberlake character will be on the other. Uh, uh, Zuckerberg's shoulders, I mean. Here's the incriminating emails thing I was talking about. Evidently, this whole thing with It's Raining Outside came from the deposition, as I guess all this stuff did. But, um, you know, this this inability to have any decorum... Uh, is uh, also, uh, I don't mean to denigrate people who are very smart or who are computer people or engineering types, but um, you sometimes, uh, it's not a rule, but you sometimes see this a lot with um, those kinds of people who are highly smart and analytically minded, and um, you get these kinds of outbursts. And this this kind of directness, this curtness, the way that he sweeps that finger across, you know, um, he doesn't think he's entitled to that 
to talk that way because he's a billionaire. <laughs> he just, this is what he, you know, it's that engineering mindset maybe, you know, this is what he thinks is true, and so it should be said. Um, this whole scene in the bathroom is sort of like a uh, shot, like a horror scene. I love this light that's in the bathroom stall. When have you ever seen a light like that in a bathroom stall? And that green hue that Fincher throws over everything, you know, it's like the Matrix. So, uh, Mesrick and Sorkin, uh, not that I keep getting sidetracked. Me, me, uh, sorry about that. Mesrick and Sorkin uh, wrote at the same time. Mesrick's book had didn't have as good a title as this movie had. Uh, Mesrick's book was called The Accidental Billionaires. Um, a story of, I think the subtitle is a story of, I read the book, uh, a story of sex and, uh, you see the camera creeping up the stall door like that. That's like a horror scene. Um, the book was not, that's Josh Pence, who is the, um, double whose face got CGI'd over by Army Hammer's face, uh, for the Winklevoss twins. Um, but that's in the other commentaries. So The Accidental Billionaires um, was controversial, not just because Ben Mesrick, uh, or, or rather um, the real Zuckerberg, um, had a problem with the book. And Zuckerberg didn't cooperate with Mesrick, didn't give him an interview. Um, some of the other principals did. This is that scene I spoke about, um, checking in with Erica again. It's very well written. Um the way the tension and what I call the secondary tension here, you know, there's the weirdness between Erica and Mark and then the weirdness at the table exemplified by this gentleman that um, is sitting over there. He doesn't appear to be, um, she doesn't appear to be here with a, another guy. Um, that gentleman who says Erica is everything okay, he, he's sort of sitting over there. He doesn't appear to be with Erica. He's just one of her friends. She just went out with this bunch of people. So she has real-life flesh-and-blood friends that she is able to relate to and go out with, and she even says here, I don't want to be rude to my friends, as opposed to the Facebook, the fake Facebook friends, or the friends with quotation marks around it that Mark is in the process of creating. So this this scene has a Tremendous resonance in that way, I think. It was nice to you, don't torture me for it. And the idea here, too, that Eisenberg's performance, I think, really shows is that he doesn't understand what he did to her. And again, um, she speaks the way college students speak. Um, uh, comparing women to farm animals, you know, that's a very sort of young and wise thing to say. We have to expand. That line is sort of, uh, I think, one of the weaker lines. Uh, I, I think it puts too fine a point on it. Um, you know, this I, I, we already got the point that this this conflict with um, uh, Erica and this uh, her not accepting him in a way uh, that this is part of what's driving him. But uh, putting too fine a point on it like that with that that line, we have to expand. Um, he could have just we could have just cut to this scene. I don't think we need that line. I love, though, in this scene, it's funny, uh, uh, <laughs> who are the girls? But, uh, he just finished, but we, we get to see Mark run a meeting. And the, again, the straightforward, curt 
way that he does it. Um, just the facts, no fluff, no, no good job. Let's go get him. No pep talk, just yell in Columbia. Let's, you know, um, he's, he's just, it's a data dump when he talks and, um, and, uh, again, he's not relating to them as a room full of people. He's, he's, he's entering data into their brains the way he would into, uh, a standard hard drive. Um. I've always liked Rashida Jones. I think she's um, pretty good here. The other line is her line at the end of the movie. The other line that I think is a little weak um, about him being an asshole. Um, but this dialogue is pretty good. Um, you must really hate the Winklevi. And you see that line, the first time in their life thing didn't work out for them. Um... If, if true, it's trivial because it doesn't mean that their lawsuit, their lawsuit is frivolous. That alone, you know, he's, he's suggesting that um, their sense of entitlement is fueling it. And, um, but the way he may have wronged them uh, may have been his own sense of entitlement. I love how they an agonize agonize over what they're going to do to him. Here comes that <laughs> karate kid line. I love it. I just love it. It's exactly, it's one of those things where, you know, people get give Sorkin flack. People don't talk like that, but I don't know. It's just so delicious. It's exact, it's one of those things where, yeah, that's exactly what it would look like, dude. <laughs> uh, the Harvard, Harvard Law, Harvard Handbook. So this idea of codes of honor, the legal code, the interpersonal code, or social mores that we all observe, and then where these characters are and where they're existing, this other code of honor, the Harvard law, that they can appeal to. All of these systems are systems they can appeal to. These rules that govern the social network as we have our first shot of Timberlake here, and... Um, this is Dakota Johnson, Don Johnson's daughter, and uh, I like that they picked, uh, I will talk about Mesrick, sorry. I like that they picked someone who's different looking, you know, she has an interesting face, and um, they could have got, you know, the casting call for this role could have been, um, I don't know how she was cast, but if you cast a role of, you know, young hot co-ed in a movie, a Hollywood movie, you get a lot of actresses who are probably very good, but sort of all look the same, or are pretty in the same way, I guess is what I mean. Uh, same general features or profile. And uh, she has a real interesting look. You remember her. And she's also very good. This scene, uh, before they even have a scene together, this scene, in a way, links Sean Parker, in quotation marks, remember, Sean Parker, this character, played by Timberlake. It links him to... Uh, to Zuckerberg, doesn't it? Because what happens here is what happened to Zuckerberg in that class. Um, someone thinks he's aloof and not paying attention, or he's interested in other things, and he is able to demonstrate by remembering her name and her mother being sober and all of that. Um, he's able to prove his uh, how his mental acuity, his intelligence, and 
So it, it links them together as characters. Very, very subtly done. And um, it's nice when you can give actors something other than the, what I think of the main dialogue, the dialogue that's moving the plot and has, you know, the stuff that we're supposed to remember. It's nice when you can give them little touches that, Give the give good actors stuff to do that they'll do well, and here the the wordplay between these two, the repartee, the uh, uh, now the shoe is on the other table, which is turned. Uh, you, I just slept with Sean Park. You just slept on Sean Park. You know, um, it, again, it, it it underscores the the intellect of Sean. It also this scene sets up the idea of him sort of. Moving from a little bit of a, a young playboy, uh, sometimes with girls who might be too young, which is an undercurrent that we get uh, throughout the movie. <laughs> There's a snake in here. And um, you know, this is just a great scene that be it's a good scene that becomes great with the performances, I think. Yeah, she's very funny there. She's very Lucille Ball there. the curtain. Uh, Now, see the way she speaks here? This is another way that college students, um, perhaps mostly um, girls or young women, uh, men have a different way of articulating themselves, young men, but uh, college-age women, uh, the way she said, it's really addictive. Um, that's the way they talk. <laughs> that's the way they speak. So, uh, before I... Um, I just have a couple points to make about Mesrick. The point about Mesrick is is that um, the book was also controversial because he employed a device in which he invents dialogue, and it led to one of the more scathing reviews in the New York Times that I've ever seen, uh, written by Janet Maslin, where she just took him to pieces because he uh, takes a novelistic approach. It's kind of written like a thriller. He's an interesting guy, Mesrick, and um, uh, he um, the Brooks the Brooks Brothers franchise line is very funny. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so he, you know, where in the scenes he writes, it's a nonfiction book where he invents dialogue. And he says at the beginning, his um, defense is he says at the beginning of the book, I'm going to be doing this. And indeed he does. Uh, I don't remember if he words it, I'm inventing dialogue. I don't know how he, I can't remember how he words it, but um, he flags it at the beginning of the book. So uh, that matters, I think, but... Um, It was a it was a very interesting book. He wrote a book called um, Busting Vegas, which was made into the movie Twenty One that starred Spacey, Kevin Spacey. That's the affiliation he has with Kevin Spacey that um, probably led to the development of this movie. And uh, Mesrick, uh, you know, he's interested in themes uh, in his nonfiction work. He's interested in. I think he went to Harvard himself. Very interesting um, guy. Sort of a lot of energy and. Um, I don't think he would be uh, offended if I called him a little bit geeky. Uh, I think he self-describes himself that way. Um, but yeah, very cool guy. His last book was very interesting, too. It was about a guy who stole moon rocks from NASA and went to jail for a long time, because evidently that's a very serious crime that they prosecute uh, aggressively. Um, very cool. Uh, very cool guy. But um, the book... And you wouldn't expect this movie as an adaptation of the book. I mean, the, the this movie, um, 
it's, I mean, Sorkin won best adapted screenplay. There's nothing adapted here. Uh, they wrote it at the same time. I mean, it's the idea for the book, and, and Sorkin just told the story in a completely different way. And Mesrick, uh, in the interview I saw, was extremely pleased with uh, the movie. I think he said it's his favorite movie of all time. Uh, uh, he's extremely pleased and proud of, of the movie. So Douglas Urbanski here. Um, uh, if you heard some of the other commentaries on the Blu-ray uh, or DVD, uh, Gary Oldman's manager, uh, they figured he'd be good for this. Evidently, his real personality is like this. Um, he's playing Larry Summers, who would, of course, go back into government after leaving Harvard and be in the Obama administration as on the Council of uh, Economic Advisors. Uh, known for being acerbic in this way, known, known for being snide in this way. Um, he commented uh, that, um, I believe he commented uh, that originally that he didn't remember this encounter, but um, he uh, commented in a colorful way and then uh, I think later on said that he probably did remember it, but that... Uh, uh, if that this he wouldn't have been surprised if it went exactly this way. Um, and he comes off as kind of a not just an asshole, but he in the scene he comes off as kind of funny and likable, and you know um, the way he has that little those little moments with the the woman who is perhaps his uh, assistant there sitting off to the side. Who uh, very cool that we have her there as kind of a, an audience. Um, the guys on down in front were talking about how, as a matter of plot uh, and scenes, if you're uh, the scene, it doesn't move the plot. That scene, it's just kind of, um, it's unnecessary. You could cut it from the movie, and we could just get it in dialogue later. That they went to Larry Summers and got no relief. Um, they're right. Uh, it doesn't move the plot, um, and it could be cut. Uh, I think that. Um, I can't. I I couldn't tell you why Fincher kept it in, uh, but what I can tell you is the the biggest. Here's Sorkin's uh, obligatory cameo. Uh, I think he's kind of funny uh, here. Is that a tisk? And a glottal stop is what um, uh, the Bushmen in Africa that you sometimes see on National Geographic. They make they communicate with those guttural sounds and. Uh, so the fact that Zuckerberg knows the word glottal stop, I think it's one word, hyphenated, um, you know, it's the kind of word that would win you the New York Times crossword puzzle on like a Thursday. Um, again, showing how sharp he is, but um, I love that moment with they meet Sorkin. But yeah, I thought, I mean, that's that's just the basics on Mesrick. I, I think he's um very interesting writer. Anyway, the uh, Douglas Urbanski scene. I think the guys on um, down in front are probably right. Uh, or um, there's a couple of the guys who are saying it's not, it's not really necessary. It, it, conceding, of course, that's an enjoyable scene and it's sort of well, well done. And the performance by Urbanski is, um, uh, I mean, in a bit role in a movie, you don't you don't see that too often. Somebody being just that convincing. The biggest effect the scene has on me as a viewer is, I mean, the the most the biggest function, the most mileage Fincher and Sorkin get out of it, storytelling wise, is that it um it 
draws out my empathy really for the Winklevi. It it um let me explain this right. Well, first of all, it follows up on the fact that they they said they were going to go to Summers, and he's, he, there's that whole scene where he makes a point of saying, we pay tuition here, we're going to roll in the Olympics for this school, and we're going to get a meeting, you know, that sense of entitlement. We're going to meet with the president. And uh, we hear in that scene that they got, uh, the meeting was uh, had for them or, or arranged uh, through their father's connections. But the big functionality of it, on me, especially the first time I saw the movie, was that um, not just that it paid off that that uh, line where they said uh, we rode in the Olympics for Harvard, but it it really made me see that the Winklevi uh, are not all powerful. Um, they sort of have their wings clipped there, you know, um, uh, and also it it. I really do think um, place is so integral, you know, um, the distinctive places we go, Palo Alto, and, and we're not, then the scenes in New York are sort of all indoors, except a couple, I think, or no, no, I think they're all indoors, but um, it's crazy uh, how that scene really doesn't move the plot, but it makes me say, oh, Zuck, or rather, uh, if the Winklevi are assholes, suppose I went along with the idea that they were assholes. In that scene, I see that there are assholes, and then there are Larry Summerses. <laughs> My friend Steph is laughing at me. Um, but but no, seriously, like um, that's what I mean by it, it draws out my sympathy for the Winklevi because in that scene, you know. You can call them poor little rich boys. You can make fun of them in, in all sorts of ways. And you can say uh, they don't deserve sympathy even. Uh, but in that scene, they really don't deserve what they got, uh, in my view. I mean, um, the sort of scolding they got and the sort of smug, uh, the courts are always at your disposal. Um you know, I'm not saying Summers should have done something. I, I'm just saying that uh, uh, they were treated, they were they were spoken to in a way that they don't seem to speak to people. Um, they were dealt with in a way with without any decorum, uh, really. <laughs> without they were disrespected in a way that uh, you can call them uh, old money and you can call them spoiled, but at least they have manners and you know at least they are making the consideration of. Um, being a gentleman of Harvard. It's so it's a deeply ironic scene. You know, we are gentlemen of Harvard and we're going to appeal to Harvard law and the arbiter, uh, the Harvard's uh, topmost, uh, the topmost enforcement officer of Harvard law, uh, you know, does not strike one as a gentleman of Harvard, but as a sort of friars club roaster. And, uh, you know, with the Brooks brothers lie, it's all very funny stuff, but, uh, Anyway, that that uh, you really you really uh, uh, I got on their side the first time I saw the movie because I said uh, I guess I just reacted that they didn't deserve it, but certainly it could be cut. So so you see what I mean with we don't just shift time and space and place. We have um, 
we have a shift in point of view here that is kind of subtle. We This is clearly Eduardo's point of view. We had that shot of him in the conference room narrating and the way the narration comes in to editorialize about what we're seeing, too, uh, has to do with where our sympathies are being pulled. You know, we're deeply, we feel, despite his, um, uh, despite how uh, inelegant he is with his words in that opening scene, we, we start off feeling sorry for Zuckerberg after he's broken up with like that, you know. She tells, calls him an asshole, he has to go home in the rain, or, it, well, it's that sort of, movie look where the streets are always wet but um man eduardo calls that his biggest contribution to the company uh it's cleaner if they just say drop the the just facebook it's very uh, uh it's very interesting that um that we get that uh that scene i think fincher mentions uh, the scene in the restaurant here i mean um i think fincher mentions that um uh, the way uh, I don't know the way Timberlake was cast exactly, or, or I think Fincher mentions that um, he thought Timberlake would be pretty good in this because uh, Timberlake, uh, you know, of course, um, had been an actor and a, a performer his whole life since childhood. Uh, the band In uh, Sync uh, in the '90s, uh, late '90s, became huge, and. He was sort of uh, on Tiger Beat magazine, that kind of performer. And then he, uh, this is at a very young age, and then he goes on to this solo career in a sec- and uh, becomes a, uh, I've seen him sing, uh, perform sort of on TV, sing and dance. I think, he, I, I, I like singing and dancing and the whole um, theatrics of uh, that. I th- and uh, I think he's great. <laughs> and um, I'm not embarrassed about that stuff. Um and so he he sort of had been there, done that, at a very young man, as a very young um, celebrity, had re, uh, reinvented himself. And so the Sean Parker person, uh, character, is someone who has had success, uh, tanked out, came back, all before he was like 25, you know. And so that guy who strides in 20 minutes late to that sushi restaurant, uh, that guy... Uh, is in a sense, in a loose sense, the same guy that Justin Timberlake is. Um, you know, he's been he's been that suave playboy striding into a fancy restaurant and wowing people, and he knows what that feels like, and he's been there, done, and so he could embody that in a in a way that um, I don't know, maybe could be intuitive, but um, that was, I think, the the kind of what Fincher was getting at, maybe, and uh, as an actor, I have never had any problem with Justin Timberlake, other than um, he's made some crappy movies, a couple a couple of crappy movies, a couple of eye rollers, but um, I- I've always sort of loved his performances when, especially when the movie's good, like here. I mean, this movie is... Um, I believe it's slightly over two hours, and it it just it just flies. It just flies by. And the the thing with the chicken too, really. Um. Oh yeah, I love that they include this in this scene where. <laughs> where you see Zuckerberg, it's this wonderful scene where we know the way people use Facebook. To, it's this wonderful scene where Zuckerberg sort of 
uh, out of necessity so that he can um, cheat in his class, uh, he discovers this uh, way of crowdsourcing and uh, using Facebook to crowdsource. And uh, uh, it's included in that scene about Eduardo endangering the company with the, the chicken uh, incident. Which is quite, you know, feeding chicken to the chicken. I mean, it was quite, uh, quite funny, you know. So, um, now, uh, the, um, the guys at Down in Front, Down in Front is a, um, commentary podcast um where all the all the guys sort of work in in the industry in movie making and um they're very good and they they mentioned that um that that reference he makes to the beverly hillbillies uh uh theme song is uh california is the place we ought to be um is maybe not appropriate because these are college kids and and um the, the beverly hillbillies was sort of television um from 30 years prior to uh, to there you know it wouldn't have been in their frame of reference uh uh even eduardo you know growing up in uh, brazil you know is, is that going to be in their frame of reference uh uh but i don't i don't know i f <laughs> that's a very funny moment i don't know i feel like uh I feel like that. I mean, that's obviously a good point. It's not going to be in the average college kids frame, frame of reference. A, these are not average college kids, right? These are guys who are hip to Lewis Carroll references. Um, Lewis Carroll, of course, wrote Alice Through the Looking Glass and the Jabberwocky poem that was referenced in that listserv uh, address uh, that's earlier in the movie. Uh, these are these are guys that um, know words like glottal stop. So they're not the average college student. Uh, but also, I feel like, um, you know, this movie is taking place at a time when, or depicting a time when, uh, you know, through the middle and latter part of the 90s, retro things became really cool, and people started wearing T-shirts of... Um, uh, television characters from eras that they weren't even alive for. You know, the idea of listening to being a 17-year-old kid in 1998, but listening to The Doors, you know, this was something that was common for young people. The, the idea of retro and being into basically the stuff your parents were into or uh, at some point in their lives were into. Um, you know, that that was a thing, and so... The, the Beverly Hillbillies is perhaps one of those things. And um, it's such a catchy uh, television. I mean, it's one of the most well-known and catchiest television theme songs ever. So, I don't know. Seems plausible to me. Very well-lit shot here of this party. And we have the source music there bringing us with the California. Yeah, that was in the trailer, that shot of him with the... Every time people are celebrating... Zuckerberg isn't, you know, he's sort of just the same guy amid all the celebration. Now, this snarkiness is, I, it's just so, exactly what guys there, I mean, it all just, you know, this behavior and the deposition, it all just underscores that these guys are kids. In his book, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, 
writes that um, it's a book about his war experience, and he writes that one of the things that gave him permission to write the book, uh, uh, you know what he means by giving him permission, that allowed him to write the book was a friend's a friend of his had a wife who who was talking. He was talking about they were talking about their war experience, and he said. Um, wow, you guys were babies when the war, I mean, you guys were babies. Uh, you know, they were like 17, 18, 19 and during the war, uh, World War II in the book. And um, the, those kind of moments, uh, and even this kind of moment with the, you know, this chimney coming down and flying into the pool at <laughs> at their new headquarters in Palo Alto. This is all just to underscore the fact that these are babies, you know. They're cooking. Uh, they've got a billion-dollar company cooking here, and they're 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 just kids. <laughs> we saw the chimney. <laughs> this is my uh, Sharon. We have a zip line to the pool. Yeah, Timberlake is very, very good. So, and this is another little subtle character thing. The throwing of the beers. See, he catches it the way Eduardo caught it back at uh, Cambridge, back at Harvard. She doesn't catch it. She doesn't get it. <laughs> yeah. But he, he used to th toss the beers to Eduardo. And now he tosses them to Sean. Sean catches them. But other than that, they have the Eduardo and... Uh, and Sean have very little in common. In, um, you know, this really is a movie about high intelligence people, uh, high IQ people, frankly. And um, I, I really, in Roger Ebert's original review, I think it's his original review, uh, he wrote that, um, or he mentions that uh, when it comes to the idea of genius or being a genius, that they have um, these established uh, fields or categories that, in which they recognize genius generally. And I guess it's chess, mathematics, and uh, music. Uh, those are the three avenues. And he suggests in, in that review that perhaps computer programming, uh, given the advances made in technology, that computer programming perhaps could be uh, another avenue in which we could show or recognize that people are obviously there's a certain kind of genius that expresses itself via computer programming and and via uh, people people who have the the capacity uh and the, the capability the aptitude to do that uh i think that's spot on i think you know um the people who are like the best the world's finest crossword puzzle solvers are often musicians or computer people engineers um, not what you'd expect, not linguists or, or, um, literary types. I don't know why I mentioned that. I just thought that was interesting that he included that in his review. And I, I always, I guess I always kind of felt the same way that I, I know com people who are computer programmers who are really bright and, you know, I mean, the way, the, the level at which they have to think and, and. And I, because I know nothing about computers, I can hardly express it. But you know what I mean, right, Steph? I mean, the people who are just, you have to be really sharp. And um, 
so people make a made a big deal about the the sound here with the music and it's like a real nightclub and you can't hear the you can't hear the dialogue very well and well you know it's not a new th- i mean robert altman was giving us some dialogue scenes where because of crosstalk and things you couldn't you couldn't quite hear uh hear what they were saying uh, Robert Altman was doing that in the 70s. Uh, but, um, you know, there there have been scenes like this in movies. It's just they haven't been as well done. And I think I think the the mix, uh, the audio mix where the music is in, in the scenes where they've tried in the movies where they've tried this, where um, people are talking in a nightclub and they tried to do it like a real nightclub. It, it's always people shouting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can barely hear them, and that's we're supposed to get the point that that's how loud the music is because you can barely hear them. I just love that they're not shouting. They're not whispering either, but, you know, I just, I think that sets it apart. Look at my face and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. So this is like a nod. Uh, the fact that Mark focuses on that the girl uh, Sean mentioned from his, or, or you know, do you ever think about that girl? Um, Mark is probably still uh, sore from the Erica Albright uh, saga, and um, it's it's the engine for his drive, uh, as I as I said. Uh, somewhat unletteredly, but, um, it, it's also the, um, it's like the shame that he carries with him, you know, it's this, um, he has to prove himself, and it, it's almost a, a soft revenge that he needs to get on her. So we have, um, all the tilt shift photography that, um, got a lot of attention here. Ren Kleiss, thank you. Ren Kleiss did the uh, sound, uh, sound designer, sound mixer on uh, the social network. I mentioned Jeff Cronenweth, I think, at the beginning, the DP. And then editing, um, was it Angus Wall and Kirk Baxter stuff who edited the social? Right, yeah. They got the Oscar, I know they got the Golden Globe, um. I did think, uh, boy, this is great stuff here. So evidently Army, I think Army Hammer was the one who had rode before, or no, no, the other guy, Josh Pence had, had rode crew, uh, maybe in school and, um, jo- or, um, Army Hammer hadn't. And so they had to learn, they had to train, they had to learn to do this. This isn't like automatic, um, and, uh, yeah, that's great photography. Fincher, of course, uh, made his bones with music videos. And so this kind of stuff here, um, with the tilt shift and the way the music, uh, is set to the action, it's just, you know. I do think that whole sequence is essential. Yeah, the Steph here is asking me. Uh, I'm gonna get you on mic one day. Um, asking me if um, 
I think that's essential, that whole sequence to the story. I think this whole sequence in London is essential. It, um, you know, in the same way um, Zuckerberg has gone to Palo Alto, here they are, um, you know, and, and of course it's that, you know, the obvious symbolism of they're losing the race by an inch and... Um, I don't know what the joke... I think this doesn't land very well, this joke. Um, uh, the prince uh, the prince of Monaco there um, being sort of abruptly ending the conversation and being kind of, uh, kind of a douche. Uh, is that a joke about the prince? What do you think, Steph? My friend Steph here uh, really likes the movie. Is that a joke that the prince of Monaco is the real prince? I don't know much about it. Is he a douche or is the joke that... They're being treated this way by, uh, you know, respectable people. I don't, I just don't get it. You don't get it either. Okay. <laughs> I like that we see their father here and their father, you know, when we had the, um, uh, the character of their father set up for us, it was the guy who was pulling strings to get them into school and to get the meetings with the president and gives them access to his in-house counsel. But again, you know, as the movie goes on, we start to feel a little better about the Winklevosses, and we start to, uh, the Winklevi, and we start to almost get in their corner, uh, I do, um, you know, just noticing here that they could have cast their father any kind of way. Um, you know, it could have been um, John Lithgow with a monocle, uh, but it's this, it was the actor we had just seen there who didn't have horns, looked like a normal guy. Kept it short with his sons, who were obviously um, depressed about having lost, uh, come on, coming all this way to lose. But he, he told them, hey, you'll get him next time. So it's like a normal dad, to the extent he can be normal uh, when you're that wealthy and your kids have such an abnormal life. But, yeah, like I say, he doesn't have horns, you know. I like how they go to this side room that is a completely different environment from that wood-paneled room over there. It's very just... It's a great face Max Minghella makes. He hugs him. So we go from that environment to this environment. You know, it's just, it's just great. You know, these little transitions. Um, yeah, And at this point in the movie, the depositions have... We don't see the depositions as much. I mean, they're still going to be popping up here and there, but uh, and they're still going to be framing the action that we see. But um, we don't see the deposition narration and voiceover. We don't cut to depositions quite as much. Um, well, we're getting closer to, in chronology. We're getting closer to the time of the actual depositions. That might have to do with it. But I think just... Um, uh, you know, if you if you looked at just the straight chronology, I think the the climax is is uh, sort of coming. It's sort of the falling out with Eduardo. You know, the the thing the thing that the the smashing of the computer. You know. Joe Masello is the actor there playing Dustin. Uh, back to work, you know. 
So again, Eduardo as parent, right? How old are they? <laughs> this whole sequence here, um, just to say about the performances and the way they're photographed, um, Fincher usually does this well, but um, it's another one of those things that I bitch about in movies today, which is that you don't get to see the performances as much because, um, you know, in the old days of, uh, I don't know, you know, the old, say the 60s, but uh, movies were photographed looser and, and um, you had more wide shots, more master shots, more, more um, not master shots, but more wide shots, um, uh, more medium shots where you could see the performances. Um, the whole performance, the actor using their body, um, moving, uh, relating to the other actor in the same frame, uh, rather than the standard over-the-shoulder uh, back-and-forth cutting that we get. Uh, we're getting a little bit of it in this scene. But um, I just like that, that you know, Fincher is one of the guys who... who lets you see performance a little bit more than some other Hollywood directors. And uh, in this hallway scene, you get it here, you know. You, I mean, the, the, you're going to be able to see what Andrew Garfield is doing. I mean, this is kind of, it's not a, a wide shot, I mean, but you can see, you know, that he's not chopping this up. You can, uh, I don't know if this plays in one, but... Um, yeah, yes, he walks back there. We get this cut to um, get a reaction, but... I mean, just the, the pacing that Saverin or um, Eduardo, uh, 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 Andrew Garfield is doing, and now Zuckerberg approaches him, and the camera follows a little bit closely, and they're in this confined space, and and they're using the whole space, despite how small it is. It's just, you know, you get to see the performances. Very cool. Again, the way that people who are geniuses or highly capable uh, being socially awkward and not not really not really striking the right tone or being a little bit too curt when they interact with people, I think Eisenberg just that's a big part of uh, the Zuckerberg character in this movie, and I I feel like again Eisenberg just gets it right. I mean. There are so many elements in this movie that if the actor fucks it up or didn't get it right or if, if they're flubbed in any way, they just fall apart. The whole movie, I think, kind of is damaged by it. So this is a key plot point. So I like that uh, Fincher and Sorkin make sure that we see it. Um, we There's no ambiguity there. Um, uh, uh, Eduardo is, there's a reference to Towering Inferno. <laughs> um, I don't know, I don't read anything into that, I just think it's quirky. Um, <laughs> so, but but Eduardo walking, we just that little sequence of Eduardo walking into the bank, um, walking up to the teller, we see the teller, he presents the account information in the checkbook, he's asked for ID, 
we it's one thing to hear something in dialogue but to to see it transpire even with just a little short scene like that um fincher makes sure and sorkin makes sure that we see it um because it's a key plot point that he does that and um and the the importance of it and the look on his face as he does it and the phone call he's about to get here is um is going to be the the um the thing that drives the separation, uh, the the break in the relationship from Eduardo from the company, and the thing that Mark cannot abide and cannot forgive. So, uh, I don't know. Another one of those movie making one on one things. I, I just like that. The, I just like that we see it. You know, it took eight seconds or whatever it was, but I like that we see it. Brenda Song, the actress here. Um, a lot of people have, you know, already said how great she is, but, um, again, you know, th this is another one of those that Fincher shoots like a horror movie, you know, the way she enters and just completely in black. Um, I like how they both, like, she's obviously, Eduardo's right that she's a little bit nutty, uh, you know, deranged. Um, obviously when she sets a fire indoors, that's deranged behavior, but... In a sense, though, they're both making good points and both both have ra some rational basis for what they're saying here, which I think really is, I don't know, I just find that funny when they both, you know, nobody's totally ridiculous here. Uh, and, and they both make good points and they both make ridiculous points. Like she says, um, it's conceivable given that she's met Sean Parker and knows the same things Eduardo probably knows, probably knows the same things Eduardo knows about Sean. Uh, the Silicon Valley sluts, her concern about that is is somewhat reasonable. It's, it has a basis in fact, anyway. And um, his response that, uh, look, they, you know, whatever Silicon Valley sluts are there, don't care what my status is, is also reasonable. Um, what you see her doing in the background there isn't reasonable. So as their relationship goes up in flames, so does... Uh, that scarf that she's setting on fire. <laughs> but, um, it's just, you know, I love the way that it, it, it adds a, a kind of, a, and you know, a kind of manicness to uh, what Garfield has to do here as an actor. You know, it's like I said before about giving the actor something else to do. Uh, boy, he's doing something here, you know, this phone call. This is the most emotion, I think, um, in terms of, well, uh, it's not the most emotion he shows, but this moment for Mark, the character Mark, is a uh, a huge triumphant moment. And he states it the same way he states every fact, the same way he, um, when he says, Eduardo, we did it. It's obviously his finest hour, but... He just says it like as it were anything else, you know. You know, the temptation if you're an actor is probably to have a big emotional moment um, or to give your character a big emotional moment when you have a character like the character Eisenberg's playing, but he doesn't, you know, he just keeps it level. And uh, it's not hard to miss what we're being shown here. Mark, at his finest hour, still on the outside while the cool kids are... Celebrating. Again, he's separate from the celebration. 
that he helped inspire. You know, for a movie that... I mean, this is what you have to do. You have a movie... Here's another, you know, serious men in serious suits, uh, or serious people, I should say, uh, uh, sitting at a table, speaking reasonably, or most of the time reasonably. Um, that's so much of this movie, so you kind of have to make it fast-paced and... and um, If you're a screenwriter or a uh, filmmaker, I mean, you you already know that um, it's not important that the audience comprehend any of these. Um, it's like the computer stuff at the beginning, you know. Uh, it's not not important that the audience understand this uh, stuff about shares and making room for new investors. It's it's important that Garfield's performance show that he understands and that he is agreeing to whatever these new terms are and that uh, that bit at the end that Mark needs to be protected. Um, he doesn't care about money. He needs to be protected. It, it, at this, this is the, that's the moment I think for me that uh, I would argue even that in a sense Eduardo is the, the sort of the hero of the movie. Now, see, that's another one of those lines that I think doesn't need to be there, even if it was in the deposition, okay? I think they could have yanked that out. I was your only friend. Um, and just have the line, I thought they were my lawyers, and maybe just have Eduardo give him a look, you know? Um, I don't know if in a deposition, would you be allowed to turn around like that? I mean... Could I put a bag on my head? I mean, I mean, no. Can just do whatever you want. Mark is kind of smiling here and happy, and so you see that. Um, do you remember the algorithm on the window? Uh, Eduardo with a kind of wistful um, sentimentality moment. Uh, he's being sentimental. He's being wistful, and he's saying that he recognizes how far they've come, and Mark just goes, yeah. Oh, you like how I do that, Seth? Yeah. So, I, 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 you know, it's like they say, all you have is your name and your reputation. Like, Mark becomes sort of... I mean, you could have cut this scene, too. I mean, I guess it figures in later, too, how they get a certain investor... Uh, he was so impressed with this stunt that he becomes an investor, which is hard to believe, but I guess maybe it happened. I don't know. But, you know, Mark becomes Sean's monkey boy there, you know. Um, all you, uh, what I say, uh, the reason I say that stuff is all you have is your name and your reputation, they say. Uh, or you hear people say that. And, um, you know, there's Mark risking his reputation for a stupid stunt that's going to, you know, give satisfaction to and revenge to Sean, who uh, probably dug his own hole, you know, <laughs> made his own bed. Well, the reason they have him turned around in the movie is so that you can have that dramatic turning around where he delivers the ambush line and, uh, you know, I... The whole movie that he hasn't been turned around, just this, 
don't, you know, he doesn't have to turn around, you know. You know, seeing the dramatization of it there, it's really remarkable what they did to Eduardo Saverin. <laughs> I mean, isn't it? My friend Steph here really likes the movie, but isn't that remarkable what they did to him? It is. Uh, Steph says that this is the big moment in the movie. This is the, the best moment in the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the. I consider that the climax. The moment that computer hits the I mean this isn't a typical structure that you have in movies but it kind of is I mean there's just three act structure here it's just you know the chronology is is moving all over but um the moment that computer hits you know because the, for the whole movie we've I love the way that's set up the whole movie we have um Steph that idea of um oh he's he's wired in you know a computer programmer being so focused intently on what he's doing it's in the movie, it, it was only he, uh, he's, it was peop uh, men who were, uh, he's wired in, he can't shake hands, he's wired in, he can't turn around. And then finally, um, the guy who's not a computer guy says, fuck that, we're gonna talk now, and he slams the computer down. So it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, uh, infringement of the friendship, but an infringement of this stupid code that you don't talk to people when they're wired in. <laughs> that was like an applause line in the theater when I saw that, when he called Sean Parker pretentious, or uh, a pretentious douchebag, my Prada's at the Queen. It was, um, I feel like that's a testament to um, Timberlake's performance. He really embraces being the, the villain here, doesn't he? He's really good. What about the chicken? Of course, yeah. Oh, is he good there? It's hard to be, uh... You talk about the way actors play scenes with each other. It's hard to be Eisenberg there. You know, obviously, Garfield has a tough performance to do there. You gotta be manic like that without being over the top, but... Or without being over the top in a way that would hurt the scene, but, um... I love that moment. Um, but Eisenberg just has to sit there, you know, and kind of It's just, it's very hard to do that, you know. Yeah, see, he's, he's, these faces he makes are just, you know. The face of someone who d never makes a worried face, uh, making a worried face, you know. You know, the humiliation of, of just what happened to him, you know, he's like the boss, you know, he's the big boss man in this, in this office here. And, um... And despite that humiliation, he tells Sean, you were kind of rough on him. You didn't have to be so rough on him. He almost killed it.
Okay, Steph, I'm not. I'm gonna try and draw you out here. Um, you don't have to go on mic. I'll. I'll. Uh, I'll narrate our. Uh, our thing that we were talking about. Um, now you're not alone. Um, this is not something that occurred to me the first couple of times I saw the movie. Actually, uh, I think the third time I considered it as a possibility, or it occurred to me that it could be a possibility, or or that. Uh, it was available there to be read that way, but uh, what I'm what I'm talking about is um, uh, there's this party, uh, this house party where uh, in a scene coming up where Sean uh, the hug. <laughs> so another milestone, everybody's celebrating. He's not. He's in a way he's right where he always is. I'm gonna explain what I was talking about in a minute, but he's right where he always was, right? Sitting at a desk with the computer in front of him. Everybody else is partying. He's not. Okay, so this house party scene. What I'm talking about, Seth, is um, you feel that, um, or you read the film as uh, the cops uh, kind of just show up at this house party, right? And when it comes to house parties in California, um, there's really nothing atypical or wrong with what's going on here. <laughs> you know, this is pretty typical. Um, now, you think that when the cops arrive here and bust Sean, uh, make it a point of going up, you know, I mean, there are, of all these people, somehow they stumble upon him. So you read this as, um, uh, and, and obviously Mark stayed behind. He's not at the party. You read this as Sean basically narked on or, or rather, Mark narked <laughs> on Sean. He called. He's the one who calls the police on Sean here. Just, uh, I, just so I say, uh, my friend Steph here is uh, shy about coming on mic, but um, she she feels that um, you know. And you're right. Look, um, I I think no, no, I. Just for the record, I think that's perfectly reasonable reading, and and um, I'm sure lots of people read it that way. It just never occurred to me. It's not that I disagree. Um, oh, did I say that I disagreed? Sorry, I don't really. It's just not um, occurred. It, it's uh, it's just not a nuance that occurred to me. I I but I obviously it's there as a or reading. Um, yeah, you see, like, they're, they're, cops here are kind of, it's, it is noteworthy that they're going, you know, focusing on him, you know, so much. I wonder if these are real cops. They just, they're, they're acting like real cops. Oh, the most, uh, the way they put that flashlight in people's face, there ought to be a law against that. I'm sorry. I, I can't stand that they do that, even in movies. Mark alone um, at the office. Now, this is like a 
a horror movie or a thriller movie, you know? I mean, that person lurking in the background behind Mark, you know, we see. What is it that makes you convinced that Mark is the one? Is it his demeanor here? Mark's the one who called the cops, and that's his demeanor here? My friend Seth says it's, sir, it's uh, rather uh, Mark's demeanor uh, as he's on the phone here. Can you hear me in your headphones, Steph? Great. Sorry. Yeah, see, this sounds like a typical... I see what you mean, Seth, because that sounds about, you know, his paranoia about this guy Manningham setting him up or people out to get him. Uh, uh, Eduardo says that a psychiatrist would call him paranoid. Is the paranoia justified? Maybe, maybe to some extent. Oh yeah, we do have this kind of weird moment with Mark here. Where we kind of go, huh. I don't know that it, I don't know why the first couple of times through it never occurred to me, but yeah, that's definitely, uh, I think that's the way we're supposed to read it, that um, did he? Uh, but, uh, not, uh, I mean, obviously we're supposed to read it that way, but I, I think, I think the film wants us to conclude that almost that, yeah. So the, um, Rashida Jones character here in this final scene actually emerges to play a very pivotal role. It's interesting that this final heart to heart that Mark has here at the end of the movie is had with kind of an ancillary character, a character whose name he didn't even know that morning, right? Steph says, that's a good point. Thank you. All right. Yes, I, I'm like Mark. I'm, I have no self-esteem. You need to build me up, Steph. I didn't know that um, she says voir dire is jury selection, but I thought voir dire was when you challenge the expertise of an expert witness. You you voir dire the witness. It's what it's what uh, Trotter does to Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny. I'd like to voir dire this witness to see the extent of her expertise. Right? Remember that. So she's explaining this for the benefit of the audience, right? Obviously, this wasn't deposition. This is just um, conjecture. But um, she's explaining this for the audience. Um, uh, it's sort of a key piece of information that we get at the end um, because it's the only logical place to put it because if we, you know, there's no other, oh, there's, I mean, there's no other place where we can really be taught that about juries. And she says, um, Look, uh, what matters in court is what you can make people uh, convinced of, and I just ask the questions, and people people don't care whether you're a good guy. That you know, uh, um, and then the feeble attempt at asking her out. So I uh, mentioned at the beginning the way the movie is bookended. Um, <clears throat> yeah, drink of water here. 
So in the middle of the movie, he tries uh, in that restaurant scene to connect with Erica again. She's not having it. So connecting with her interpersonally and, and his social awkwardness as a genius <laughs> makes it hard for him to connect with people interpersonally. Uh, but at the end of the movie here, he's connecting with Erica again on his own terms, or attempting to on his own terms, only through this elaborate structure called Facebook that he's created. Uh, is he able to connect with her on his terms through the computer screen? Um, she was well-adjusted and able to share a table with real-life people and enjoy their company, and they got her back, you know, the guy saying, is there a problem? Um, and yet, there she is on Facebook. So the movie becomes about, um, you know, one of the things the movie's about is the way that all this sort of signaled a huge change in the way our our lives are lived, you know? People who are perfectly well-adjusted and have lots of friends, still, like Erica, still feel the need to have a Facebook page and have friends quotation marks, right? Facebook friends, not real friends, people they've never met sometimes. Uh, being con The idea of being contacted by someone that you had a breakup with, someone from your past, but um, they're going to try and get you through Facebook and contact someone you never would have spoken to otherwise. Trying to... Uh, wriggle their way back into your life through this thing called Facebook. We, we have all that going on at, at the end, you know. Um, and it's also bookended with the asshole thing, right? She calls him an asshole, and at the end, Rashida Jones says, you're not an asshole. See, that, that that's what I mean about that line. It just writes stuff it, like it feels tacked on just because we had the asshole. <laughs> Just because we had the asshole at the beginning, right? So now we have the asshole line at the end. It feels like, you know, you're writing screenplays sometimes and you just feel, you just see all these opportunities where you can do stuff like that. Um, but I don't know that it always works and I don't think it works very well there. I mean, especially when you think of some of the other things she could have said or he could have said or, um, but, um, despite his success, he has the same misfortune um, with women Rashida Jones rebuffing him there and then uh, you know I one of the things that that last scene captures too is um, I don't know if we had it in the movie then but this idea of um, and the way he's sort of well this idea of doing something on the internet and then just sitting there and obsessively but you know um uh, uh, click, you know, obsessively clicking refresh, waiting until that person on the other end or that whatever it is on the other end, um, reacts to what you've done, his friend request, you know, he just sits there clicking refresh and that, that, that is a very, um, you know, um, this generation, or I, I guess people, the idea of clicking refresh over and over again has been around since the dawn of the internet, but, um, you know, that, that, that action is so, just watching him do that, and the way he's resigned to doing that, you know, he's very calm, he sits there, arms folded, he's not going anywhere for a while, it seems, 
He's just going to click refresh until, until Erica says that she'll be friends, quotation marks with him or not, or she, you know, until she reacts. Um, And the, the way that, I mean, so those are sort of a lot of the ways you can uh, think about that last scene. For most people, though, they just sort of delight or um, uh, the big the big takeaway that most people seem to have with it. Um, uh, just because I, after one screening, I there was an audience discussion and uh, I, re- I was from a couple of years ago. And I remember that um, that last scene, people people really liked the idea that of the ubiquity of Facebook or, um, the fact that, um, you know, here was this girl who hated his guts and said, good luck with your video game. Yet even she, uh, is on Facebook, just like the president is on Facebook and everybody's on Facebook. Um, even she can't resist the pull of Facebook. And, uh, people really thought that that was an interesting way of showing how this, um, you know, uh, socially awkward kid was able to win the hearts and minds, basically, of uh, of the entire culture. Uh, I'm going to finish here, Steph, by asking you, the year this uh, came out, the King's Speech, it won the Golden Globe for Best Movie. Uh, it cleaned up at the Golden Globes, um, but, um, the King's Speech won for Best Picture, and, um, uh, Fincher didn't win Best Director, uh, rather, um, the director of the King's Speech did, Tom, uh, Hooper, I think. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I know you, I, you mentioned you like the King's Speech. My friend, you. I'm gonna get you on mic if come hell or high water. My friend Seth says that it was a grave injustice. Uh, is that grave injustice? Uh, yeah, I think it was just you know I, I don't know very many people who loved the King's speech who r- raved about the King's speech. Um, I know people who um, I know a lot of critics and I know people who said uh, I respect it. It's great. The performances are good. But I didn't know people who were making it a point of, you know, recommending it to their friends and in the way that people did the social network. Not that that should be the barometer that we use for, you know, saying what the best movie is or what should get best picture. You know, ultimately, the awards are meaningless in in terms of it doesn't mean that a movie's better than another movie. But if ever there was a movie that I thought should be recognized in its time it was this movie that captured so much about the contradictions of our time. Uh, so, oh, you, my friend Steph says I'm I'm making all good points. You know, you need to compliment me more often. We're going to get you, Mike, just for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.